0: Well, the section that we're looking at this morning, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, begins with therefore. And, of course, we all know what's coming when you see it. therefore. you got to ask, what is it there for? And so, what is referred back to when Paul begins this section and says, therefore? Is he referring to the statement that we are his workmanship? Is he... Referring to the statement that by grace we are saved. What is it that Paul says in view of this? Therefore, remember. What is Paul referring to? And what he is referring to is actually way, way, way back. All the way back into verse 17. Where Paul says that he is praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is, pardon me verse 17 of chapter 1, where Paul says that he is praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, that is the Ephesians, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us. believe? So a number of weeks ago, we looked at that section and saw that what Paul is praying for is heart knowledge. That the Ephesians will not just understand intellectually the truths of the gospel, but they will grasp these things at a heart level. So what Paul is doing when he comes to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11, is he's basically saying, listen, since I'm praying for heart knowledge, since I'm praying that you would have heart knowledge of the hope, particularly I think is in view here, of the hope to which he has called you, since I'm praying that you Ephesians would have heart knowledge of the hope to which he has called you, since I'm praying that you would have, as he says in chapter 1 and verse 18, the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Therefore, Ephesians, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, etc., etc., Remember where you came from. Remember how God has dealt with the Gentiles throughout history in order that you may better appreciate at a heart level the nature of the hope to which God has now called you in Christ Jesus. We see that that is the referent of the therefore when we consider that Chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, is really actually just a continuation of Paul's elaboration on God's power, which begins in chapter 1 and verse 19. Look at it. Look at your Bibles. He says that he wants the Ephesians to know, and then chapter 1, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, That he worked in Christ, and then he goes on and on and on and on and on and on, all the way to the end of chapter 2 and verse 10. All of this is the immeasurable uh, greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Everything in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, is contained in that. So then Paul comes to the end of that. So he's basically, his train of thought is I've been praying that you'll have the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you'll know the hope that you'll know the riches, that you'll know the power of God at work in your salvation. This is the salvation that He has worked for you, the hope, et cetera, et cetera, Now, therefore, you Gentiles, give some thought to this. Meditate on this. Ponder this. That you used to be separated from Christ. We're in chapter two and verse 12 now. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers to the covenants of promise. Having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So that's the train of thought. That's where this comes in contextually in the book of Ephesians, the section that we're looking at today. That's Paul's train of thought. So what we see is that Paul doesn't want those Gentiles, the Ephesian Christians, nor us Gentiles here in the 21st century in Barbados, to simply be able to talk about the covenant of works, the covenant of redemption, the covenant of grace, election, redemption, effectual calling, total depravity, regeneration, conversion, the Ordo Salutis, the Historia Salutis, Neonomianism, Legalism, Antinomianism, etc., etc., and all these things that we've been talking about over the last couple months as we've been expositing the book of Ephesians. He doesn't want us just to merely be able to talk about these things and merely to be able to understand these things. Paul wants us to feel the significance of remembering them, and that, pardon me, he wants us to feel the significance of them, and that involves remembering uh, who we are, and how God has dealt with us as individuals. And how he has dealt with us as a people. Those who are non-Jews. John Newton said, To read the scripture, not as an attorney may read a will, merely to know the sense, but as the heir reads it, as a description and proof of his interest, herein is blessedness. Paul wants us to read his epistle to the Ephesians as heirs, not merely perceiving the truth of the gospel objectively and factually, but also perceiving the gospel as pertaining to us. In other words, we ought to read the scripture, which contains the story of redemption, not merely as the story of redemption, but as our story of redemption. This is how we ought to read the scriptures. And so after examining what God has done for the Ephesians, Paul says, in effect, now, therefore, meditate on that. Remember that. Think about that. So we're going to unpack this section of Ephesians today, covering um, uh, verses 11 to 13. And we're going to look at the rest of that section over the next couple of weeks. But we're going to uh, look at verses 11 to 13 today. And we're going to look at it under two headings. At one time, which comes from verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, etc., etc. And then the second thing we're going to look at is but now, which comes from verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, etc., etc., etc. So those will be the two. Mental hooks that we can hang everything on as we work through this section today We're going to look at at one time and then but now So at one time What we're going to do here is we're going to contrast the experience of jews and gentiles in the old testament At one time Israel By Implication Was the opposite of all these things mentioned in verse 12 Now, obviously, um, Paul mentions five things, but obviously, one of them uh, would be really redundant uh, and useless to spend any time on. One of the things that Paul says Gentiles were, was alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Now, obviously, Israel wasn't alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, so we're not really going to spend any time talking about that, but we're going to look at those other four things, the opposite of all the things that are listed in verse 12. Verse 12. The Israelites then were first near to Christ in the Old Testament. Look at verse 12. He says that the Gentiles were at that time separated from Christ. So by implication, the Jews were near to Christ. How is it that they were near to Christ? Christ hadn't even came yet. How is it that the Jews in the Old Testament were near to Christ? Well... Christ was revealed to the Jewish people in types and in shadows. The manner of relating to God ever since the fall um, has been uh, the same. We have always needed God to condescend to meet with us in some place, uh, which we could call a temple. We have always needed a priest, someone to represent us before God. We have always needed a sacrifice of atonement to take away our sin, to deal with our sin, so that a holy God can remain holy and yet relate to an unholy people. We have always needed to bring offerings, to bring something in our hands, as it were, something worthwhile to give to God, because you don't appear before a king empty-handed. So Psalm 96 says, bring an offering and come into his courts. And we have always needed cleanliness. We have always needed to be pure. Because God uh, is of purer eyes than to behold evil. We have always needed all of these things. And what you see is that uh, the efficacy of all these things, uh, the ultimacy of all of these things is Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the temple, the place where God meets man. Christ Jesus is the priest, the consummate priest, who represents people uh, to God and who represents God to the people. Christ Jesus is the ultimate atoning sacrifice who actually, effectually deals with sin. And Christ Jesus and His righteousness is actually the offering that we bring in our hands as we approach God. Not grain offerings or incense or any of these things, but Christ Jesus in our hands we bring. And and it is Christ Jesus who makes us clean, not only taking away the guilt of our sin, but taking away the impurity of our sin. All of these things were revealed. Uh, the manner of relating to God was revealed to the Jews in the Old Testament by way of types and shadows. All of these things, the institution of all of these things, and before even Moses, before even the Mosaic Covenant. All of these things were revealed. You see right from the very beginning. You see even from Cain and Abel. Sacrifices. Right? That there was revelation obviously going on behind the scenes. Which taught Cain and Abel. You need to make a sacrifice to God. You see uh, a contemporary of Abraham. Melchizedek. Functioning as a priest. You see all of these things even well before Moses. The right way of relating to God. In a a appointed temple by a priest, uh, with sacrifices, with offerings, uh, having been made clean, all of these things was revealed primarily uh, to uh, the Jews. And if we go backwards, further and further, from Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel and his descendants, to uh, his dad Isaac, to his dad Abraham, all the way back. through the line of Shem, all the way back through the line of of Seth, what you see is that God chose particularly to deal mainly with a particular lineage of people throughout the Old Testament period, right from the second generation. Cain kills Abel and God gives Adam and Eve another child, Seth, and God deals primarily with Seth's line. And then after the flood, God deals primarily with Shem's line. And then God deals primarily with Abraham's descendants. Um, And then God deals primarily with Jacob's descendants and so on and so forth. So what you see is that primarily God revealed Christ Jesus uh, to the Jews in the Old Testament and not to the Gentiles. And so what you see is that the Jews then can be said to be near to Christ in the Old Testament, while the Gentiles can be said to have been separated from Christ in the Old Testament. But not only was Christ revealed to the Old Testament uh, Israelites, but they actually had Christ present with them. And we are not going to unpack that at length, but I just want to read one verse just so I can show you textually. Um, uh, that this is an indisputable point. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4. And they all all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Wow. So we're not going to begin to unpack these things. But suffice it to say. Christ was not merely near to the Israelites. In the sense that he was revealed to them. The way that. Um, uh, uh, somebody might be near to us insofar as we have a book about them in our hands. But Christ was actually present with the Old Testament Israelites in a particular way, as 1 Corinthians 10.4 is an example of. And thirdly, the Old Testament Jews uh, were near to Christ in that they were offered salvation in and through Christ. The same way that we in the New Testament are offered salvation in and through Christ. Romans five one is the summary of an argument that Paul has been developing throughout chapter 4. He has been arguing that both Abraham and David were also justified by faith. The same way that New Testament believers are justified by faith. And in Romans 5.1, Paul says... Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what he is implying here in this section is that Abraham was also justified by faith and had peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And David was justified by faith and has peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Christ was near to the Israelites, not only in terms of revelation, not only in terms of presence, but in terms of a gospel, His gospel held forth to them, as it were, so that they could believe in Him and be justified by faith. Now, of course, they didn't have the clarity on the nature of this salvation that we have in the New Testament. It would be anachronistic to say that uh, they knew that his name was Jesus, that he was born in Bethlehem uh, at such and such a date in history, and, you know, that he did all these such and such miracles that we read about in the Gospels. Of course, they didn't know all of those things. But right from the day that Adam and Eve fell into sin, there was a promise of a Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew word that becomes the Greek word for Christ, And so when we read Messiah and when we read Christ in the Bible, they're saying the same thing. And both of those words mean anointed one. And right from the first day of the fall into sin, there is a promise of a Christ, a promise of a Messiah, a promise of an anointed one. God uh, curses the serpent and says that a seed of the woman would crush his head. And there are further promises of a Christ, further promises of a Messiah throughout the Old Testament. And by faith that this Messiah, this coming one would effect uh, all of the uh, promise, all of the things that God has promised and that our salvation would be found ultimately in him. People were justified by faith uh, then the same way that we are justified By faith now. And so, in this way, the Jews were near to Christ in a way that the Gentiles were not near to Christ. The Gentiles did not have the revelation of Christ that the Jews had, they did not have the presence of Christ that the Jews had, and they did not have the gospel proclamation to them that the Jews had. And so, uh, the Israelites were near. To Christ, whereas the Old Testament Gentiles were, as Ephesians 2 and verse 12 tells us, separated from Christ. And this goes hand in hand with the next thing that Paul says that um, in contrast to the Gentiles who were strangers to the covenants of promise, the Jews were familiar by implication with the covenants of promise. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. I'm just going to read the first two verses. What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Turn with me now to Romans chapter 9. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. What we see in those two passages is that, though it's clear from reading, uh, not only even the Old Testament, but also reading the New Testament, not all Old Testament Jews were saved. That should be clear. Not all Old Testament Israelites were saved from their sin and went to heaven when they died. But they had the revelation and presence of Christ among them in a way that no other nation did. And the manner in which God related to them by his covenants with them was unique to them alone among the nations of the earth. And those covenants contained the promises of salvation. By the Messiah. And that's why they are called covenants of promise. Obviously, we don't have time to look at all of those Old Testament covenants in great detail and expound each and every one of them. But just turn with me to a couple of uh, passages. Look back at Genesis chapter 15 and verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites and the Jebusites. Uh, God uh, enters into a covenant uh, with Abraham's offspring to relate to them in a particular way, and in the way that God relates to them, uh, there are promises, which when we go on, we read in uh, Genesis chapter 17, uh, verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations, etc., etc. And and over uh, again, we read in uh, chapter 22... Verse 16, God says, "By myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, "cause you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of His enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice." And so what you see is that God enters into relationship. With the descendants of Abraham in a particular way, and uh, we don't have time to unpack this this morning. But what we see is that uh, in Christ Jesus, ultimately, these promises come uh, to their fulfillment. We see that in Galatians, as Paul says uh, in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16 Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many. By referring to one, and to your offspring, which is Christ. Again, I'm not going to go into all these details and unpack this. It can be complex and so on and so forth. We'll get there eventually in our evening series through Genesis. But all I want you to notice is that um, these covenants contained promises. And so though God entered in to deal with Abraham's children in a particular and in a specific way, they can... The, that covenant contained promises. And so you see that that is an example of a covenant of promise, which is referred to in Ephesians chapter 2, the language referred to in Ephesians chapter 2. Now look again at 2 Samuel chapter 7. And here we have uh, what is often referred to as the Davidic covenant. And I'm just going to read verses 12 to 16. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And again, God makes a promise uh, to David and through David in Psalm 110, where we read, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. What we see here is that God made promises to David that had their first uh, referent in Solomon, but had their ultimate fulfillment in Christ Jesus. So again, it's a covenant made with a particular people. Not with the whole world, but with David and with his offspring. But it's a covenant that contains promises. So the Jews, in a particular way, were familiar with these covenants of promise in the way that Gentiles in the Old Testament were not familiar with these covenants of promise. Therefore, the Israelites had hope. In contrast, again, back to Ephesians 2.12 with the Gentiles who were without hope. Because the Israelites were near to Christ in all of the aforementioned ways, because the Israelites had the covenants of promise, the Israelites had hope. They had hope in the preaching of the gospel. Remember Romans chapter 10. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how are they going to call on Him and whom they've never heard? And how are they going to hear unless someone preaches? In Israel, there were preachers. And in the rest of the world, by and large, there were not. Again, we can think of exceptions like when Jonah went to Nineveh. But by and large, in Israel, there was the nearness of Christ. There was the revelation of Christ, the promise of Christ, the presence of Christ, the preaching of Christ. And in the rest of the world, by and large, there wasn't. And so the Jews had hope in a way that the Gentiles did not have hope. Now again, not all were saved. Not all Old Testament Israelites were saved. But certainly none were saved who never heard. You might say, well, what about the innocent man somewhere in a far section of the world who has never heard? Well, like R.C. Sproul, I would say, well, he will go to heaven when he dies. The innocent man... In some area of the world who has never heard, will go to heaven when he dies. But as R.C. Sproul says, there is none who is innocent. No one is innocent. The Bible is clear about this. In Romans chapter 5, we read that we are guilty in Adam. That the whole human race is guilty as well as uh, heirs to a corrupt nature because of Adam. So we are guilty because he acted as our representative when he sinned. And so we are sinners in Adam. But more than that, we are personally guilty. Romans chapter 1 talks about how we can know something true of God just by the light of nature. And what we know uh, we have rejected. What we know we have suppressed As a human race in unrighteousness. And so we have incurred guilt. In other words we know enough to have responded wrongly to the revelation of God that was given us in nature. And instead of worshipping God as we ought. uh, We have not worshipped God as we ought. Instead of uh, exalting the creator we have exalted the creature. And so all men are guilty. And so none in the Old Testament era outside of Israel. never heard or say wow think about that let that sink in they were as Ephesians 2 and verse 12 says without God God is not near to the well-meaning people in some far reaches of the earth who have never heard they are without hope they are without Christ this is the plain teaching of Ephesians 2 12 some have said, well, maybe they're saved by Christ without actually knowing that they're saved by Christ. In other words, they're doing the best that they can and God is gracious to them and sends Christ to atone for their sins, though they themselves may not know anything about Christ. Some have argued along these lines. What does Ephesians two twelve say? It says that those in Old Testament times uh, who were Gentiles, who were outside of Israel, were without Christ without hope, without God. It's clear that the state of those who have never heard about Yahweh, who have never heard about the promises that Yahweh has made, who have never heard about the way that Yahweh has fulfilled those promises in Christ Jesus, it is clear that they are without God, that they are separated from Christ, and that therefore they are without hope in the world. Let that sink in. That is a sobering, sobering thought. It is a horrid thought. It is a, the kind of thought that almost makes you feel sick to your stomach. It is a kind of thought that really ought to make us tremble at the fate of those who have never heard of Christ Jesus. Think about that. Our forefathers... Our forefathers were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in this world. Whether the uh, indigenous people of this island, the Arawaks and the Caribs, whether the indigenous people of Canada, or whether uh, the, uh, if we go back to our Ancestors, for many of us, we could trace it to Africa, or for others, we might trace it to Europe or wherever. Gentiles, the vast majority of the world, Israel is a speck, a pinprick on the map, a very small portion of the world, relatively speaking, where Christ was near, where the temple was located, where the true manner of worshiping God was revealed where God drew near to people covenantally to bless them, where hope was, where God was. This was a relatively small portion of the world. And for generations, for hundreds of years, century after century, people who had never heard plunged headlong into eternity guilty for sin. Wow. Think about that. That is a really sobering thought. Now there were, of course, again, exceptions. Job. Many think that Job was a a contemporary of Abraham. There was Melchizedek, who was certainly a um, a contemporary to Abraham. There was Rahab from Jericho. And Ruth, the Moabites and Naaman the Syrian but the vast vast majority because they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and the covenants of promise were separated from Christ without hope and without God in the world and this is what we need to consider that was just and fair God did not extend saving grace to the Gentiles in the Old Testament period. But God did not deal unjustly with the Gentiles in the Old Testament period. That's what I really want us to catch this morning. Because I think that's what Paul really wants us to catch as he's bringing across just what God has done for us in Christ. God did not deal unjustly with the Gentile nations in the Old Testament. Though he never revealed to them the gospel. Though he never drew near to bless them covenantally. Though he allowed them to perish in the broken covenant of works. Guilty in Adam. And personally guilty because of their sin against what little they did know. In allowing them to perish. Whole families. Whole people groups. Tribes. Languages peoples, nations. God did not extend grace in that era to them for the most part. But that is a different thing than saying that God acted unjustly. God did not extend grace, but God did not act unjustly towards all of these people groups. Think about that. Let that sink in. What we deserve, what all of us deserve humans deserve all of us Jews and Gentiles included and this is Paul's main train of thought in Romans chapter 1 through 3 what all of us deserve all of us Jews and Gentiles is condemnation what all of us deserve is hell God's drawing near to Israel in the Old Testament was not because they were entitled to God's drawing near not because they deserved God's drawing near, but merely because God was gracious to them. Turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 7, and let's read verses 6 through 11. God says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Implicitly, why? Verse seven, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and, keeps his, and keep His commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate Him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates Him. He will repay Him to His face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. God drawing near to the Israelites in this manner, was it because they merited it? No. It's clear from the section that it was not Because they impressed God. But simply because it says the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Let's read one more passage in Deuteronomy. But hold that thought about the oath that he swore to their fathers. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Let's read verses 1 to 5. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Cities great and fortified up to heaven. A people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Therefore, know today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly, as the Lord has promised you. Do not say in your heart, After the Lord, your God, has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord, your God, has brought me in to possess the land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord, your God, is driving them out from before you. That he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. So again, were the Israelites entitled to God's covenantal drawing near to bless them? No, this was not because of their merit. It was because of grace. But you might say, well, but because of the oath that God made to their fathers. So, so maybe Abraham merited God's covenantal drawing near and God was covenantally keeping his promise to Abraham's descendants because Abraham merited it. Look at Joshua chapter 24. Let's go all the way back to Abraham. What do we read? We read this. In Verse 14, Joshua is speaking to the Israelites and he says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers uh, served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river... Or the gods of the Amorites. In whose land you dwell. But as for me. And my house. We will serve the Lord. Uh, and he goes on to say. They go on to say. No we will serve the Lord. And so on and so forth. Um, but what we, what we see in this section. Is that. He makes the point that their fathers. Served false gods. Uh, beyond the river. That. God did not keep promises to Moses' generation or Joshua's generation because their fathers merited it, but because their fathers, uh, but in spite of the fact that they don't deserve it, and even their forefathers, Abraham uh, and, and their, their other ancestors, served false gods, both on the other side of the river and in Egypt. If you look back at the beginning of chapter 24, you read this. Verse 2, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many, etc., etc. What you see is that both... In Deuteronomy, the passages that we read, that generation didn't deserve it, nor did Abraham deserve it in his generation. But God's drawing near covenantally, God entering into a covenantal relationship with Abraham and his seed in order to bless them, in order to um, give them uh, uh, promises of Christ Jesus and ceremonies in order to typify and foreshadow and make clear the nature of Christ and His work and make promises of the Gospel and the Messiah. God did not do that because they were entitled to it. But in, fe- in spite of the fact that they were not entitled to it, they had demerited these things, but God graciously drew near anyway. So what we need to see before we move on here is that if God had not drawn near to the Israelites, Even if God had not drawn near covenantally in order to bless any of the nations in the Old Testament period. If after Adam fell into sin, God justly condemned every person walking the face of the earth who was ever born and ever died throughout the whole Old Testament period. And if he had never sent a savior so that there even was a new covenant, God would be just it would not be uh, an example of God acting graciously giving us more than we deserve but it would not be an example of God acting unjustly when Adam sinned we all incurred guilt in him and a corrupt nature in him and if God had justly punished all of us all of us for our sin he would be just And so, we see then that in God choosing Israel of all the nations on the earth, He didn't act unjustly. He acted in a just way. He acted graciously with the Israelites, giving them more than they deserved, better than they deserved, and He acted justly towards all the other nations, leaving them separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, without hope, And without God in the world. And so all of our forefathers. Likely. Likely without exception. All of our forefathers in this room. In the Old Testament era. Unless Ruth. Or Melchizedek. Or uh, Rahab. Or Job. Or one of the exceptions to the rule. Is in our direct ancestry. Likely, it is more than probable that in the Old Testament era every single person from whom we derive our very existence um, all the way back to likely perhaps even the Garden of Eden and certainly many, many, many the, the vast majority of our ancestors perished without ever hearing the gospel. Wow. That is a sobering, sobering thought. Think about the manner in which God has dealt with the world. Wow. Think about that. And then we come to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Wow. Think about that. When he says you, he's talking about you Gentiles. You, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. That is, the, the Old Testament uh, Jewish males were all circumcised. That was one thing that demarcated Jews from Gentiles. And that's, that's what that whole circumcision bit is about. You called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. You were once like that, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now you uncircumcised people, you Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What grace that is. What grace that is. Not finally God has given us our just deserts. Not finally God has been fair to us Gentiles. But wow, God has seen fit to include us as beneficiaries of the work of Christ Jesus. That God has seen to include us in the reception of the good news, the gospel. That God has mandated that not only should there be a universal gospel... A gospel that is relevant to people from every tribe and language and people and nation. But God has commanded that uh, that gospel be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. That we should have a chance to hear and receive. Not finally God has given the nations what they deserve. But wow. Look at how gracious God has now been in Christ Jesus to us Gentiles. Wow. Think about that. We're going to talk next week at greater length about the manner in which God has brought us near, namely by the blood of Christ. We're going to look at that and unpack that in the next few verses next week. But this week, I just want to drive home that point. We were, uh, us Gentiles, we were lost. We were really, truly hopeless. We, we did not even have the preaching of the gospel in our uh, midst, in our native tongue. We didn't have the scriptures in our language. Uh, we did not have these things. But now God has ushered in an age of global proclamation and has dis- decreed to deal differently with the Gentiles now after the coming of Christ that he dealt with us throughout the Old Testament age what grace that is. We can thank God that Christ Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, which we're going to unpack not this evening, but Lord willing, next Sunday evening as we look at Christ in His uh, priestly office. But suffice it to say as a summary, thank God that, that um, we don't merely have priests who offer sacrifices only for the Jewish people, but that we have a priest who offers sacrifice who offered a sacrifice once and for all for people from every tribe and language and people and nation. We should thank God that we have heard the gospel, even the fact that we have heard it, that we have believed it, that there are Christian churches in Barbados and in Canada and in the UK and around the world in places other than Israel. We should be thankful for this. We should be grateful for this. I was just in Malawi uh, uh, in the end of May and the beginning of June. We should be thankful that there are Christian churches in Malawi. We should be thankful for uh, the fact that Gentiles who were once far off have now been brought near. That should be something that fills our hearts with thankfulness and fills our hearts with gratitude. We should be thankful for this grace that Christ Jesus did not act on behalf of Jews only when he offered up his body to be broken on the cross and offered His blood to be shed on the cross. When He came into this world in Bethlehem so many years ago, He did not come to be merely a Jewish Savior. That would not have been unjust. But God sent Him to be a Savior of all men, Jews and Gentiles, people from every tribe and language and people and nation. We should be thankful for that grace, a Savior uh, who we can proclaim freely freely. To all and sundry and invite anyone who, will, uh, who is thirsty to come and drink. Anyone who is hungry to come and eat. Uh, where we can just proclaim, Whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Uh, we should be thankful for this universal grace that has uh, come to us and is being proclaimed to the ends of the earth in Christ Jesus. We should be very grateful and very thankful for that and it should also fill us not only with a sense of gratitude but it should fill us with a sense of urgency because do you realize that there are people still today who have never heard about christ jesus there really are unreached people people who do not have christian churches accessible to them people who do not have the scripture in their language. People who do not have Christian preachers preaching in their language. There are people who are unreached now. And they are plunging headlong into uh, eternity apart from Christ. They are, they are not by God's decree, not by God's uh, plan or purpose, but um, uh, in the sense that God, not that God has intentionally, um, set a demarcation between them and between other nations up until now in the way that he did with the Jews and the Gentiles. Um, But there are those who, by virtue of circumstance, by virtue of the way that the church has to date, uh, not yet fulfilled the Great Commission, there are those who are still in the state That Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12. Whole people groups who are separated from Christ, alienated from, we could say, uh, the church, alienated from the people of God, strangers to the covenants of promise and the fulfillment of those covenants of promise in Christ Jesus, and therefore without hope and without God in the world. This, the state of people. Apart from gospel proclamation, apart from uh, exposure to the new covenant and the people who are included in the new covenant, the state of people uh, outside is hopeless and without God. And that should fill us not only, um, not the the fact that we've been included should fill us with a sense of thankfulness, but the fact that there are those who have not yet been exposed should fill us with a sense of urgency. To take the gospel to the unreached. You've heard me pray before that God would give us the privilege of sending someone, even here from this little church, to an unreached place. May it be so. But if the Lord does not raise up in our midst someone to take the gospel to an unreached place, may God make this little church here in Barbados a great commission church. Would God make this little church a church that cares To make sure that the gospel gets all the way to the ends of the earth. To make sure that people in every tribe and language and people and nation have access to the gospel. That they have the gospel preached. That they have the word of God in their language. That they have Christian churches in their midst. That they become... Heirs to the same privileges that we Gentiles, the rest of we Gentiles now have in this New Testament age. May it never be that we're just content with the fact that people are lost and utterly lost. Not just lost because they have rejected a gospel they've heard, but lost because they are guilty in Adam and have never even heard a gospel for their lostness. May we never be content like that. And so may we be ascending church. May God raise up men from our midst to go and plant churches and pastor churches in unreached places. But if not, may we be a supporting church. May we be a, an encouraging church. And may we always be a praying church. As we look forward in future years at our budget. We just passed our first one this past Wednesday. 2018 will be our first full year as a church together. But in future years, will we see foreign church planting become a a sizable and significant number in our budget as we try to send, even if it's just for for us, proportionately, it might be a big number, but in the grand scheme of things, it might be a drop in the bucket. But may we be faithful at least to bring our five loaves and two fish and give what we can to the furtherance of gospel missions. When we hear about people taking the gospel to places where Christ has never been named, Would we be a church that's like quickly like, yeah, let's support that. Let's get behind that. We want to be involved in that kind of work. May we be a great commission church, not only in seeing the sanctification of the nations happening, which is important and for which I have come here to Barbados. But may we also at the same time be a church that's about the justification of people in every tribe and language and people and nation. A church that pursues the lost souls of those who have never heard among people groups who have never heard so think about that and think about that sort of side door application as we consider the state of those who are cut off from the people of God who don't have any exposure or access to the people of God think about that as a relative uh, uh, a relevant and, and pertinent application alongside the thankfulness Uh, But let us be thankful for grace instead of feeling entitled to grace. Let us remember that we who were once separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world, have now been brought near in Christ Jesus. And next week we'll unpack that idea further.